Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This morning, I do hope you'll keep your Bibles open there to Romans as we continue this mini-series in the midst of our time going through the whole of the book of Romans, this mini-series in the second half of Romans chapter 1. We're in this passage that communicates a tragic reality about the reality of human sin. This morning and next week, we consider one of the effects of humanity's ungodliness, as it says at the beginning of, of this section in the second half of Romans 1, we consider the effect of humanity's ungodliness and humanity's unrighteousness upon our sexual relationships. Now, obviously, this is a sensitive topic, not only culturally, but also particularly for some who have younger tr- children in our midst, uh, as always, we'll handle this topic with a, a propriety appropriate to a gathering of Christ's church, but there may be some aspects of the message this morning that we do encourage parents to use discernment with, and really probably the best discernment that be used is a discernment that takes place in conversations at home and in community groups and uh, in in the the framework that takes place out of this place to explain uh, and to share together, to bring the truth of God's word in a godly manner to young ears. This morning, as we begin to look at this scripture, I actually want to take us over to Ephesians, okay? In in Ephesians, we have sort of a summary statement of everything that we see here in the second half of Romans 1. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, honestly, it's a great passage to jot in the margin of your Bible over in Romans. It says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And we we covered that. Romans 1, the second half of Romans 1, is holding out that the the Gentiles have a knowledge of God in creation. They ought to, but they've suppressed that knowledge. And here in Ephesians, they're saying that we can't walk in that suppression as the Gentiles do. It says, the way it puts it here in Ephesians is in in the futility of their mind. It goes on to say they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves over to, in a callousness of heart, in a darkened heart, they've been given over to sensuality, greedy to practice, every kind of impurity. We'll look at that much closer next week, this concept of being greedy to practice impurity. The fact is, we, by our nature, our fallen nature, have a futility of our minds. That is, an understanding that has become darkened so that we no longer think or, or live in ways that interacts with the wisdom that is available to us in God's creation. We no longer live by that which is actually, on a creation design level, natural. But rather, we walk in the naturalness of our fallenness, in our folly. Ephesians and Romans are explicit about why this is the case. They, the Gentiles, have become ignorant and hard of heart to the things of God. That's why they're eager to run after impurity. They've become ignorant and hard of heart to the things of God. They've become idolaters, explicitly idolaters, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And in this willful ignorance, they have been given up to sensuality and they lustily practice every kind 
of impurity. Now this morning, the purpose of our passage in the second half of Romans 1 is to explain the effects of idolatry that's practiced uh, on those who have rejected the invisible attributes of God. That's what we saw there in the middle portion, beginning in verse 18, the invisible attributes of God being known to them in that which was made. But they've rejected those invisible attributes. That is, they've rejected the glory of God that's been revealed in the heavenly places. So human sexuality is created to be ordered and aligned with the purposes of creation, right? God is a designer and a creator of the reality of human sexuality. And so it comes with his defined purpose, love, marriage, with a defined purpose. Well, we can find that defined purpose in a number of places in Scripture. We can go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This male and female new creature, humanity, is created in the image of God for a purpose. And it says God blessed them, Adam and Eve, that that first these first human creatures, representative of this new creature of humanity that bears God's image, male and female. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The image of the creator that this new human creature bears is expressed and multiplied as male and female within this husband and wife relationship. There's a design that God is doing in male and female. Now later in Ephesians chapter 5, a little bit later than the passage that we referred to earlier, we have an explicit purpose defined for us. Marriage has a definition in Ephesians 5 that is revealed that is outside of itself, outside of a simple self-expression of people who want to enter into marriage. And and that's how we tend to think of what marriage is today. Like, I love her, she loves me. We want to express that together. It it sort of finds its origin in falling in love together, mingling of of souls in here. And then we express that that inner self-expression in this outer form of maybe a wedding ceremony. Or maybe not. But the fact is, that marriage has a definition and a purpose that does not flow from inside of a heart of a man and a woman as a self-expression of their inner love. It has a meaning that's outside of the couple. This is why weddings are not simply a private affair. It's why there are witnesses. If you go to the Song of Solomon, you have the witnesses of of the whole of the city are observing the love of this man and woman, and they bear witness, and they exclaim numerous times. That's why weddings in the church, the church gathers to celebrate the new marriage and glorify God for the story that he's revealing in the new union. So what is it that marriages are bearing witness to? What is outside of the man and the woman and their self-expression of an inner love that's taking place? Marriages are given to mankind to be witnesses as they communicate something, not about a man and a woman, but about God. It's the whole purpose of creation. If if creation is a self-expression of anything, it's an expression of God, his character, and his glory. In Psalm 19, we saw that the heavens have a purpose. And the purpose of the heavens is to image the glory of God, to display his handiwork. Marriage, and in marriage, human sexuality, rightly ordered according to creation design, has the purpose of imaging an eternal truth of Christ and the church. Paul says this was a mystery until Christ appears. And then we saw Christ and we're like, we were wondering why marriage was so amazing. 
We know it's not men and women. They're all kinds of messed up. But this whole marriage thing actually reveals something profound and enduring in every single culture. And when Christ appears, we're like, that's the revelation of the mystery. It's not about a man and woman at all, is it? It's about Christ and his church. The sun and the moon and the stars image an eternal power and a divine nature of God. But marriage images love and submission experienced between Christ and the church. You see, each aspect of creation has some glory of God to reveal. That is the given purpose of creation. And so it is, this is, this is where we're going, it is idolatry to redefine the created thing to be used for the purpose for which it was not given. Do you see that? It is an idolatry and abuse of God's divine purpose in creation to, to call the stars mere gaseous atomic structures as if they were silent and not declaring the glory of God to call marriage a self-expression that can be defined by whatever is inside of the self, as if that marriage was not given to display the glory of Christ. You see, a block of wood and a piece of stone were not given to be set up on a pedestal and worshiped as an idol. That is an idolatrous inversion. It is a misuse of wood and stone and stars and men and women. To invert them, marriage and sexuality given as a self-expression? No, no, it's given as God's declaration of the beauty of the gospel. And friends, there's no more beautiful thing. That's why this is important. Christ is why this is important. Heavenly Father, I pray that there's so much, so many off-ramps for us this morning, so much error we could wander off into. Lord, I pray that you would guard us against the error of self-righteousness, self-righteous legalism, by which we define a set of sins that may be a majority of us don't struggle with, and so those sins are the bad sins, and what we do isn't that big of a deal. Guard us against that legalism. Guard us against the idolatry of our hearts that would be okay with some idolatry and not others. Lord, rather capture us with the beauty of your glory. May we never be satisfied, Lord, I pray, by your Spirit's work and the work of your Spirit by your word this morning, that we would not be satisfied with anything less than the full display of your beauty, that we might behold you and we might join in proclaiming you. Thank you for the grace that we have to know you, to know you in creation, to know you by your word, and to know you by the Christ. Cause us to know you more today. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to situate this message, first of all, in the fact that it isn't first and foremost about homosexuality. It's in there. It is in there. Now, some try to deny that it's in the passage that we read just a moment ago, but it's actually not about homosexuality. You've already seen it. It's actually about idolatry. That's what Romans 1 is, is about. And second... I want us to understand with a clear-eyed honesty that the scriptures call us to re regarding each of our own ungodliness and unrighteousness apart from Christ as idolatry. This is the language we'll read in just a moment. The language that we'll read in just a moment is the phrase, such were some of you. In the cities of the Roman Empire, sin was familiar, very familiar. This is the world into which Jesus was born, a culture saturated with the Greeks and the Romans and all of their sinful idolatry. Again, in Romans, Romans chapter 2, it begins this way, and you were dead. 
speaking to the Ephesians, not some general theological category of the depravity of sin. No, he's speaking to people who were part of a church, who were receiving a letter in a city called Ephesus in the empire of Rome, and he tells them, you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of the world. There's a way that the world was going, and you were going with it, following the prince of the power of the air. Oh, there's an enemy, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The course or the way of the world was sin and trespass, and the Ephesians were going right along dead in idolatry. And the very people who make up the beloved church in Ephesus were previously dead in sin and trespass. Do you hear that? Does that make sense? That's real. That's not just a theological category. It's practical. Here's how it's described for us in the church in Corinth, another church where like people were. And here's what it says in Corinth in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And there's all kinds of people like, that's right. That's why we don't let people like that in here. We don't want to be associated with people who don't inherit the kingdom of God like those people. And such were some of you. Well, that's complicated. Not at all. It's the point. What's it say? But you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. Man, is there a church where that shouldn't be said of us? God, we need more of the top half of this verse to be true in our midst. Do you want that? Do you want more thieves? Do you want more revilers and homosexuals? Such they once were in our midst, so that we can also say, but you were with us, washed. This is reality. The most important part of that scripture is not the list of depraved sin, but the fact that in that sin, there is no way to inherit the kingdom of God. In sin, there is no way to inherit. This is still who we are by nature. And apart from Christ, we would remain outside the kingdom of God, but you were washed. Now, this is the part where where Paul normally breaks into doxology and just starts singing. He's like, oh, wait a minute, we gotta get back to preaching, all right? Now consider this reality. We have experienced a period of centuries in the West in which while our sin nature was not eradicated, we have never experienced in any place, any season, in any broad culture, small culture, microculture, country, we've never experienced a place where sin nature has been eradicated. And yet in the West, many of the expressions of our lusts were restrained. Many expressions not many of the lusts themselves, but many of the expressions of those lusts were restrained by a culture that at least had access to God's word and largely ordered society around the basic principles of God's design for human sexuality. The the basic frameworks of the culture were ordered according to revealed nature. Humanity in the West, enjoying a season of cultural restraint brought about by centuries of giving attention to the right ordering of nature, this is where we were not long ago. Was there depravity and abuse? Absolutely, and it's not hard to find. If you can find a human alive during the course of that time, you found depravity and abuse. Cultural sexual restraint does not equal godliness. I'm going to say that again. So we get that in our bones. 
Cultural self-restraint does not equal godliness, does not equal the elimination of the lusts of our flesh. Social constraint does not eliminate idolatry. And all the depravity of our scriptures this morning make it clear that idolatry is the problem. But a rightly ordered world is a better world to live in than a disordered world. We've made that argument in previous messages in this passage. But there was also a norm for a long season in Western culture, a norm to which the culture sought to conform itself, at least as a matter of public order. Now, garbage happened in households and basements. But as a matter of public order, there was a certain cultural norm, and the world was better for that right ordering of our lives according to nature. Now, I want us to consider how radical this statement is, how different our current circumstance is to the context into which Romans was written. This is a quote from a journal I give attention to. An article was written in Nine Marks that says, many cultural norms concerning sex and acceptable sexual behavior have been today swept away. In particular, the Christian view of gender and marriage is being rejected as oppressive and damaging. You hear that, right? We live in a season in which a a good cultural norm ordered according to revealed nature is being swept away. Today, just a short time ago, there were cultural norms deeply shaped by biblical revelation about gender and marriage. Now, go back to Rome AD 57 when this letter was written. It was Christians. The context were Christians who were trying to claw their way out, not of self-righteousness, but rather out of their own depraved pasts, and such were some of you, in which you once walked. What were the norms of Romans 1? Well, the whole of Greek and Rome were, were, was a world run through with sexual immorality and disordered nature, and it had been for a long time, and it was an empire that was was causing that disordered view to go out to the ends of the earth. And Christianity was a new challenge to these norms in the Roman world. Though it should be noted that it is true that biblical Judaism, in that little sliver of land at the edge of the Mediterranean, was always a challenge to the Greek and Roman culture. It was this biblical sexual ethic, which was being presented as a challenge to a surrounding pagan, idolatrous culture that was so common among mankind. So we, thinking of ourselves and our culture as so recently reflecting a Christian norm, is not the place out of which Romans is written. Do you get that? This is not, Romans does not go into a place where, where you know, godly sexual ethics are beginning to, to fall away. Know that it is ripe with ignorance and depravity. And yet, the gospel, the good news, in this precious letter of Romans, dropped into a far more depraved culture than our own. And from there, into Rome, that that gospel was dropped, it transformed the whole world. I'm listening. I want to give attention if that's true. Now, our passage this morning, verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For this reason God gave them up. We've been considering this reality in recent weeks that the depth of our sin and the darkness of our heart into which humanity has fallen is both a result of our own depravity and a result of God's judgment upon depravity. I think this is really important. We tend to conceptualize the universe since we had such a, a, at least publicly, externally, and legally rightly ordered society as it regards sexual ethics for so many centuries in the West. We tend to think of, of humanity's nature as default relatively ordered. 
but know that our hearts go everywhere we are born, and the order that we see in Rome is far more natural to the disorder of our heart. And so the result upon that idolatrous depravity is God's judgment on depravity. And what we find in this passage, if you read the whole thing, and I hope you will over and over again, that sin is its own punishment. Idolatry leads to a foolishness and a depravity that God then gives you over to that you would perpetuate in that depravity. And only you and those around you are suffering the results of that depravity. That is God's judgment in this world. Their reward to, that God gives them over to, if their, if their behaviors were dishonorable and shameful, what does he give them over to? Dishonor and shame. Look at verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen, the issue at hand remains idolatry, and that's corrective for us. Our purpose this morning is not to achieve some Victorian or even Puritan sexual sensibility, not merely a rightly ordered public society. Our chief purpose is to expose the idolatry that is at the root of sexual depravity. In our hearts and in the hearts that we come to love and want to see rescued from the wrath of God by the righteousness of God in Christ. So let's be clear where we have faltered. There's a few things that I have to say. Man, I want to say it all, like all at once, so you can hear it all at once and not get distracted thinking that there's not more to be said. There is more to be said, but for now, we have to begin by saying homosexuality is surely Sin, it's what's described in this passage. We'll look at it. There have been many attempts to make this scripture that we read this morning say something other than what it says. I don't have time this morning to rebut every vain argument, but this scripture is incontrovertibly clear in its description. It describes dishonorable passions. You see it, right? It describes dishonorable passions. It describes its women having exchanging relation, natural relations. And this phrase that is in Greek literature often, natural relations, is consistently referring to what we call sexual relations. It's what the word means. It's what it refers to. These women have exchanged natural sexual relations for what is unnatural. In the next verse, Paul gives a further description of what he's talking about, of what he means when he speaks of the men. If you look at it with me, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And that consumed with passion is like not just a Passover phrase, it is a passionate consumption. They are, they're on fire with passion. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. They were consumed with passion for one another. He speaks of men committing shameless acts with other men. There are many today who try to redefine sin. And in trying to redefine sin, they try to call sin good. You and I do that. We rationalize whatever sin we have We try to make that not sin, and whatever sin others have, now that's obviously sin. We do this, but the whole point of this scripture is to make clear that homosexuality is not merely sin. It is folly and idolatry. It is the end to which the creature goes when the creature has rejected the creator and falls in love with himself. It's a result of exchanging truth. For a lie. It's the futility of thinking and the result of hearts that are darkened. It's dishonorable passions and it's actually shameless acts. The very purpose for which human male and femaleness was given is denied in these dishonorable passions and in these shameless acts. 
So is it homosexuality or idolatry? Which are we talking about here? Honestly, one of the difficult things about preaching and like, like saying words out loud that other people will hear and maybe even write down and remember and then hold you account for and say, why'd you say that, you know? Is I feel like I need to offer an apology, like to offer a defense to say that homosexuality is not the only sin. And I do say that, I've said that. That's like not the first time I've said that. I have a compulsion to tell you that. It's true. Homosexuality is not the only sin. It's not the only way that humanity pursues dishonorable passions either. It's not the only shameless act. It's not the only way in which we exchange that which is natural for that which is contrary to nature. You and I know this. And it's a denial of biblical reality to act like this homosexuality is the problem with our culture today. It's not even what it says. Anyone here who thinks himself righteous because he's not engaged in homosexuality nor dealt with disordered attractions would do well to consider the other warnings that Scripture gives against greed and pride and, well, self-righteousness. But homosexuality is the disorder that the Lord holds out to us here. So as much as I want to make that apology, and I have made it, I hope I've made something clear, a nuance that ought to be in the passage. I don't want to deny what it says. It holds out. Where we see homosexuality increasing in a culture, in an environment, in a community, we ought to consider carefully if there was a prior rise of idolatry in that same culture. That's what we see happening in this passage. Well, I look around me, and what do I see? I see homosexuality and all kinds of depravity on the increase all around me and in my community and in our homes and and we're reaching into our households via our devices. And the business that we have to ask is not, whoa, that's bad. Yes, like do that, but you've missed the point. Is there an idolatry that is rampant? Maybe I don't haven't walked off in shameless acts. But is there any way that we have participated in idolatry? It ought to be a warning to us that perhaps the order of our culture in which we find ourselves enmeshed has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So we ought to find our marching orders somewhere else than in the culture that has fallen into idolatry as evidenced by homosexuality. And yet, It just so happens this is where we are today. This message is at least a call to just stop for a second, not primarily to rail against homosexuality, though there is a warning for us to guard against the reality of that depravity and and the fact that it is called a shameful act and it will leave you dishonored and it will leave you filled with shame. But our purpose this morning is primarily to be circumspect, I like words, and I like that one. Circumspect, it means spect, spectacles, look around. Circum, circumference, around. We're to look around. To be circumspect. To look around and consider where is idolatry in the midst of this disordered humanity lurking in the very air that I'm breathing? Idolatry. Is there any way that we ourselves, even in our church, have become futile in our thinking? Or perhaps our our foolish hearts have become darkened. Now, we need to take just a moment to ask the question, how did we get here? Why are we at this? I think we are in a moment. That's the whole reason why we're actually taking four weeks in a sort of mini-series in this section of Scripture. I think that we are in a moment of reversion How do we get to a world that openly and vehemently celebrates all forms of sexual depravity? And even more, in its celebration of what was previously considered deviant, like five minutes ago, a disregard and even a malign for what is natural. Not only does it celebrate the deviant, it maligns the natural. Consider the appearance of the word cisgender. Perhaps you've heard of that before. Let me be clear. The word cisgender is a made-up word, a word that's only necessary if you have simultaneously elevated sexual deviancy as normal. 
That's why you would need to come up with a word for what was previously considered just normal, just rightly ordered. And so we call that cisgender. We only need a word like cisgender to describe natural humanity, male and female created in the image of God, if we have also crafted out a futile thinking and foolish hearts, a pantheon of alternative genders. And then we begin to notice that all the other genders are to be celebrated and declared with pride. But cisgender, what used to be called rightly ordered humanity in light of the stars and the maker, cisgender is what is called more often with derision. It's used derogatorily more often than not. How did we get here? What, what happened? There's a lot that could be said. I think it is at least important to note that from the sexual revolution of the 1960s on, we have had a sense that we ought to be able to do whatever we want. It was all over the music. It was all over the music before, and it's just gotten bigger in the music after. But over the course of these 50 years since then, the main idea is that it is within the capacity of my own choice to make myself happy. I know what I need, and I can, on my own, I can live, we say. The corollary is that there is therefore no such thing as sin. If I know what I want, and I can make myself happy, there is no such thing as deviancy. There's nothing that we should not be allowed to do except what we don't want to do, The only reason we ought to do something or not do something is because our autonomous, individual, free choice, not because of any external authority or social pressure or definition from above. This is dominant reality. And some of you are like, yeah, that's called relativism, and I read a book about that once. No, you were born thinking like this. Your parents and my wonderful parents talked like this. This is where we live. It's like in Judges, at the end of Judges, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we have a long history at this point, at least a 50-year history. And if you pay close attention to the philosophy and the literature of those days, it comes out of so much more that came before We have a long history of carving out our own morality out of a sense of self-expression and self-satisfaction. Self-expression and self-satisfaction. The second thing I would say is that by virtue of an unyielding hold to individual autonomy, on my own, I know what I need and I can self-satisfy, we have to admit that some of us can't help but do what we desire. If our desires are set If we are given over to our lusts, we can't stop. This is why we were enslaved to our own lusts. Even if what we desire is actually clearly unhealthy, if if it were not for the futility of the mind and darkened hearts in a previous time, our lusts would have been recognized as destructive. But in society today, it's just called individual expression, and you're set free and even encouraged in that expression. Just a couple examples. Consider the rise of drug use and the destruction that's left in its wake. It's just self-expression. It's just what I need today. And it's destructive, and our lusts run free. Consider homosexual behavior in the face of sexually transmitted disease and the destruction of the family that runs in its wake promiscuity in the face of fatherlessness. We see the destruction, but our lusts, we we rise up and we do it anyway. And while we enable ourselves to perpetuate these destructive pursuits through technology and medicine, we mitigate against the dangers. What would have been in a previous time a destructive behavior with the development of, of what some call freeing technologies They're mere inconveniences, like the replications of free love mitigated by birth control and abortion. You see, technology can help us out with some of the inconveniences of free expression of our lusts. Medicine to deal with STDs, but we aren't. Even if we are able to deal with some of the ramifications, we haven't dealt 
with the damage to persons. We haven't dealt with the damage to societal structures. There have been irreparable impacts stemming from the dissolution of families. The, the beautiful image of the complementarity relationship, husband and wife in a home, destroyed. The drastic rise of divorce and promiscuity creates what is essentially widows and orphans. That's what we used to call them. Today, we just call it, you know, regular, normal. Friends, there are a few things that cause me immediately to just break down than a reflection upon the fatherlessness and the widowhood that has been wrought by the sexual revolution. I see it. I see it myself. I see it in others. It ought to break our hearts. It's not normal. One author notes that the free love approach favors the powerful. Those with money can mitigate some of the effects of divorce through alimony and child support. But if you don't got money, you just have fatherlessness and widowhood. The powerful can sexually abuse and manipulate those with less power under them. It turns out that God's good order is not just restrictive, it's good. It's order. It's righteous and sweet and all the things that the psalmist calls them. Yes, it constrains my self-expression, but my self-expressive individualistic sexual freedom has brought about destruction in this culture. So this is where we are today. Those who historically were given the responsibility to maintain the health of the society, and there are those who are are put into positions to help to move the society on, not to destruction, but to right order. Things like parents, or pastors, or community leaders. The fact is, pretty much all of us have lost every ground that we have to call on, to call on individuals in the culture to a better way of flourishing in society because every call to a better, rightly ordered, flourishing way is simultaneously a call to individuals to be limited, to be limited in the almighty self-expression. Almighty, oh, it is. It is our idol. This is our God our own self-expression, and these leaders that are are to to help a society move on from one generation to the next are being shouted down because the reality is it is a restriction on our self-expression because that was never supposed to be God. God is. All of this amounts to an effort to free ourselves from nature. We're attempting to put together a life and an environment and a social structure for ourselves that denies God's revelation in nature and in his word. And so we we come up with synthetic things and technological advances and a variety of medicines to help us not be human. Not to be what we actually are in this way. I'm not a big organic food junkie and it's okay if you are. You can self-express that way. (laughs) But for all of our organic food junkiness, we're not very organic when it comes to our life. That which is natural, we are developing all kinds of synthetic ways not to be. We're attempting to put together a life and an environment and a social structure that is not real. Romans 1 makes it clear that at the heart of this denial is a rejection of God as God. And the result is humanity that's less than humanity. There are are two ways to understand ourselves. That our identity, our meaning, our purpose is given. It is revealed in the stars and the sun and the moon. What we are is a result of nature a created nature with a God as creator. And by that, we mean God's generous act of creation. It's why it's so natural to look up at the sky and see a sense of meaning cascading down to us, not rising up within us, but meaning being declared over us. The meaning of God's glory in the universe 
Meaning is declared over you because it's outside of you and above you. But there's another way to view the universe, that we're just stuff, just atoms gathered into cells. You might have a mind or a consciousness somehow, if that's not a delusion, some sort of spirituality. But who we are really is what we decide to do with our raw material of our humanity and our bodies and our flesh. So we can use our bodies however we want. We can carve them up. We can remake our body in the image of our own imagination. We can become synthetic, essentially, beings. There's no responsibility to live in a given world as it was generously given, but rather we have a responsibility to express ourselves. So sex and sexuality and all the fleshiness of our bodies have no actual transcendent meaning. We craft our own meaning out of our own sexual imaginations, or we deny all of its meaning and simply use our bodies like a commodity for base entertainment. We consume ourselves, and we consume others, and the only right order is our entertainment. And that's, that's the end of a consumer culture. The denial of God leads to the degradation of society. Specifically, the society becomes degraded sexually, specifically, not merely sexual deviancy. Deviancy is just that, right? It means to deviate, a behavior that deviates from some central norm. Degradation is not merely deviation. It's when the grade, degrading, the grade of the society itself norms the abnormal. So deviancy is no longer deviant. The whole of the culture has degraded. Do you see it? What is at the heart of sexuality in a non-degraded society? Man and wife. Parents and children, families, men and women and children, a people who are knit together by nature, held out to us. An image even of a greater family knit together by Christ. There's so much more for us to consider. I'm concerned that there are essential implications that we've only partially unpacked, and I unpacked it just enough to be dangerous. And so I hand this over to you with the spirit and the word to go and do business with what we've considered today. But as we close, let's go back to verse 16. Verse 16, the the sort of banner over which all of this flows, for I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Do you struggle with what the scriptures call dishonorable passions? And that's rude. You don't say something like that to somebody these days. Do you, do you, do you struggle with same-sex attraction is what we're supposed to say. Well, the Scriptures call it dishonorable passions, and man, that's hard. Scripture says some things that are hard. But here, verse 16. Verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is God's word for you. You are not some sort of peculiar creature whose sin and temptation is too great for eternal power or divine nature of a gracious God. As one author wrote, addressing a parent who might say to a child who begins to ask questions about his or her sexuality, he says, but you are so much more than your sexual temptations. Imagine if you said that to your child. What if your child comes to you and says, you know, I'm a th- I think I'm a thief. I think I'm a murderer. And you could say, watching you these days might be true. But in Christ, that's not the final word. I know a good news, which is the power of God for your salvation. The, the very power of the divine creator leveraged to save you. The gospel was dropped right into a culture at least as degraded as our own. The church grew up being made up in no smart, small part of those previously enmeshed in all manner of dishonorable passions and shameless acts. We too have this gospel, the very power of God for salvation. And so listen, listen, 
We ought to expect not merely to survive as a cloistered church to squeak through this present darkness. Man, that's not my aim. It's not my goal. It's not what I read. It's not what happened. But rather to see our church filled. There's chairs. There's houses. There's room at your table for the sexual immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality and thieves and greedy and drunkards and revilers and swindlers, all manner of those who would not inherit the kingdom of God except this, you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want to close with a quote, a quote from from David Platt. That's not the most important part. The quote is beautiful, though. The most offensive and countercultural claim in Christianity is not what Christians believe about homosexuality. Not what Christians believe about abortion, marriage, religious liberty. That is not the most offensive or countercultural claim. Instead, the most offensive claim in Christianity is that God is the creator. He's the owner, and he's the judge of every person on the planet. Every one of us stands before him guilty of sin, and the only way to be reconciled to him is through faith in Jesus. The crucified Savior and the risen King, all who trust in his love will experience everlasting life, not Shame, not degradation, not dishonoring of their bodies, everlasting life, while all who turn to him, who turn from his lordship, will suffer everlasting death. And so, for the third week in a row here in Romans, I call the congregation to faith in God, who is God, and thanksgiving for the sweetness of his revealed. Way. May God fill us up with a sight of sanctifying, justifying grace. Heavenly Father, there's so much that we don't see. We're weak people. We're very finite. We're also fallen. We need eyes to see. I pray that your spirit would give us just that enlightening grace. We need to give attention to your word that we might see and know more rightly. Lord, as we see, we will see our sin. I pray that you would guard us against shame, show us our guilt, and bring that guilt to the cross that we might know your grace. Thank you, God. We trust you for your work in our congregation. We also trust you for the work in our households. We also trust you for your work in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our community and culture. May you be honored as God. This is what you are, and we give thanks. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.